Okay, well, hopefully you've turned to Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. That's our sermon text for this morning, and we're going to dive right in. The title of this morning's message is, Does Your Life Match Your Message? Does your life match your message? Let's stand together for the reading of the scriptures as we just listen attentively uh, for the voice of God in the text of scriptures. From Philippians 1, beginning in verse 27, Listen to the word of God. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your true and living word. It is powerful, and it is... um, endless in its wisdom for us, in its instruction to us, in its correction and reproof and training and righteousness. Um, It is good always. And even when it's challenging and difficult, as it may be today, but we know that you know all that we bring with us when we come to worship, all we carry with us day by day, how we look collectively as your people on this earth and what it is then that you need to say to us collectively and as individuals. So all of that we open to you, we lay bare before you and we ask that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated if you're standing. I saw a movie uh, many years ago. In fact, I don't remember anything almost about the movie except for one part of one scene. Um, but it, it involved, uh, it was about an alien who, who was visiting the earth and he, he cloned a human and so that he could took, take on the form of a human and sort of go about life here, learning about how humans live on earth, what life was like on earth. And so he just began to learn about humans and human, human behavior by observing. And at one point, he thinks he's ready to drive a car because he's watched very carefully and he's learned the rules of driving. And so he thinks he's come to understand how traffic lights work. And at one point, he says, red light, stop. Green light, go. Yellow light, go very fast. And uh, I'm sure you would agree that from from watching some people, maybe that you know, and maybe it's you, that would be a reasonable conclusion to draw, even though it's the wrong conclusion, right? That that observing somebody's behaviors, patterns of behaviors, he had concluded that uh, yellow light means go very fast, even though that's not what yellow light actually means. And so if people were to try to determine the values of the kingdom of God, 
uh, not by what we claimed those values to be, but by simply observing how we lived, what would they conclude? I don't know if I asked that question clearly enough, but if, if people were to try to determine what are the values of the kingdom of God, if they'd never heard anything from the Bible or about the Bible, didn't have a Bible and, and hadn't heard anything about Christianity, and they were trying to conclude what the values of the kingdom of God are by watching us, rather than listening to what we claim those values to be, what would they, what would they think? What would they conclude? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us here in this passage, and, and maybe you picked up on it, um, essentially in so many words, that our way of life ought to match our message. Our way of life ought to match our message, or as he puts it, we ought to live a gospel-worthy life. That's the language uh, he uses. And so I want us to look for the answers to three questions in this passage this morning as we consider the, the overarching question, does, does my life match my message? We want to we answer three other questions. What, what is a gospel-worthy life? Uh, number two, what is the evidence of a gospel-worthy life? What does that look like in action, in other words? And number three, what is our motivation for living a gospel-worthy life, or what should it be? So I'll take those three questions up and spend really most of our time on the first question, but what is a gospel-worthy life? Because it's interesting, this is a rather succinct statement he, he begins with in verse 27, and every word of it um, is important. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In fact, there are fewer words in Greek than there are in English. But, um, but let's consider the meaning, if you will, is dig a little deeper on uh, what, what is the gospel and what does it mean by let your manner of life, what does that phrase mean, dot, 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 and then what, is, what does it mean for it to be worthy? So the gospel, uh, we, we think of very often, I think, the way it's construed a lot of times in American evangelicalism is um, there's this message where there's a, a, almost an invitation. I'm going to overstate this a little bit. This will be a little bit of a caricature of it. Um, but it's like there's this invitation to do this transaction with God. Okay, say this prayer, repeat after me kind of thing. You, you come forward, you say this prayer, and then I'm going to give you a ticket. And then you can just carry on with life as you were. And when you get to the end of the life, present this ticket, and that's your ticket to go to heaven. That's the good news, that at the end of life, you'll get to go to heaven. Uh, that's true, and it's a part of it. It's, that's a very truncated kind of gospel. Jesus came preaching, he said, and the gospels say, the gospel of the kingdom. He came preaching good news about a kingdom that was be, going to be inaugurated, um, not only at his coming, but we would find out at his death and resurrection, and will be finally uh, fulfilled at his second coming. But he came preaching the gospel of a kingdom of God. And it's a little, just a, a little bit of a reminder that, that there are whole books written on that topic. And I, I'm just touching one small point of this today. Um, but it is to say, it's a reminder, there are two spiritual kingdoms that collide on this planet. They are spiritual kingdoms. They're, neither one are, are, 
are confined to the earth and yet they they collide on the earth and compete if you will for dominion over the earth and um, the gospel is good news of what God has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus in securing forgiveness of sins for those who would believe in him and through that forgiveness provide entry uh, for them, citizenship even into the kingdom of God. To live um, under his kingship and to live um, amidst all of the glories of that kingdom. That's the good news. It is a gospel of a kingdom. And so, then when he says, let your manner of life be worthy, we get a little bit, we get a bit, little bit more clued into the significance of the fact that the gospel is a gospel of the kingdom. The word there um, that's translated in the ESV, let your manner of life, I think in some other translations, NIV, maybe New American Standard says, conduct yourself. Uh, but it's an imperative. But the word is, uh, the Greek word is polytuistai, which is not important for you to know uh, that word. I share it, though, because it shares the same root, uh, polis, which is the, the Greek word for city. Uh, it shares that root with uh, the word polytuma, which is citizenship. Now, let me put all that together because this is not just sort of academic stuff. You, you know, I want you to hear the similarity between this imperative he issues here that says, let your manner of life be polytuistai, the word for citizenship, polytuma. So uh, the, the, a better translation or a fuller translation of this first phrase would be, only let your manner of life as citizens be worthy of the gospel. And New Testament scholars point this out. In fact, this comes out in some modern translations, um, but, but some of the less common ones. I think the Christian Standard Bible uh, has that word citizens in it. I think actually the New Living Translation does, interestingly enough. But, but the, the point in saying that is that's actually really important to appreciating the meaning of what he's saying here. That, th that this word can't be separated from the notion of citizenship. Because the, the, the imperative is essentially live um, like earth is a colony that's part of the kingdom of heaven. So the, the, the residents of Philippi, with, uh, Philippi was a, a colony of Rome, okay? Part of the Roman Empire. So they were to live in Philippi, yet they were citizens of the Roman Empire. We're to live on earth like it's a colony and part of a heavenly kingdom. And so while the colony has some of its own local practices, the, the values of the kingdom actually supersede those. They govern over those. So we're to live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom who, for the time being, are dwelling on earth. As a matter of fact, we could say we're not only temporarily dwelling here on earth, but we're here on assignment as ambassadors for the king. You may remember we considered that job application for Christian ambassador a couple of weeks ago. That is our assignment here in the colony of earth. 
but as part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me, let me illustrate this principle here. That is to say, again, there are local practices and customs on the earth, but there are values of the kingdom that supersede those, that govern over those. Uh, there was a general, British general named Charles Napier. He was a commander in chief of colonial India. And prior to colonization, the Hindus had a practice that was called sati or sati. And that was basically that when a woman's husband died, the widow would throw herself onto the funeral pyre where his body was being burned. She would throw herself on the fire and be burned alive with his dead body. Supposedly, they did this voluntarily, um, but sometimes it was done under compulsion for sure. You can maybe imagine, <laughs> try to imagine what the pressure would have been like at that moment, whether, whether to do that. But the British banned that practice. When the, when the, when the British colonized um, India, they banned that practice. And on one occasion, a, a delegation of uh, Hindu priests came to General Napier to voice their objection to that ban. Uh, the, to the fact that that practice had been prohibited. And they explained, this was an important and revered custom, and they should be allowed to maintain their customs of widows being burned with their uh, husbands, widows being burned alive, rather, with their husbands. That, to me, is an important detail. But um, here's what General Napier said in response to their objection. He said, be it so, this burning of widows is your custom, prepare the funeral pile. But my nation has also a custom. When men burn women alive, we hang them and confiscate their property. My men or my carpenters shall therefore erect gibbets on which to hang all concerned when the widow is consumed. Let us all act according to, na to nations, to national customs. Now, as you might imagine, uh, they came to an agreement that the ban uh, would continue, but the point was there um, that there were values of the empire that superseded the customs or values of the local colony. Now, you can sort of go off and have all the kind of uh, arguments you want to have about uh, colonialism and colonization and that kind of thing, um, but it illustrates this point vividly that the local customs are superseded by um, the parrot kingdom, if you will. And for us, this world is the colony and everything in it operates according to local customs. Everything on this earth, you think about the way, just all of our comings and goings, and maybe even the way that we do politics, the way our whole system of gov government operates, in the grand scheme of things, in the cosmic scheme of things, those are local customs, but they are subject to a higher authority of the kingdom of heaven for the people of God, for the people of God. That we, uh, we live by those values, we embody those values, and we represent those values on the earth. Uh, that's what it means for us to live our life as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. That's the imperative being told to us. Um, and then he says, the third word for us to kind of unpack here, we're to do so in a way that is worthy 
of the gospel of Christ. If I had started out, as I thought about doing at the outset of the sermon, if I'd started by asking you, is your life worthy of the gospel? Uh, probably as good card-carrying evangelicals, your, your immediate answer would have been, no, of course not. I'm a sinner saved by grace alone through faith alone. Nobody's worthy of God's favor. Well, if that's what he meant by worthy, that would, that would probably be a good answer. And that would be a good answer that would get you all kinds of applause and amens in a Sunday school class anyway. Um, but, but actually, he, he has something else in mind here when he uses the word worthy. That is not to say that uh, make yourself deserve the gospel or deserve God's grace. Uh, but it, it has something else in mind. The, the word here is, was originally used of balance scales. So if something, was, if something cost two pounds of gold or silver or whatever the case may be, uh, you would put two pounds of weight on one side of the scale and then balance it out with two pounds of gold, right? That, that this thing you are buying is worthy of two pounds of gold. Uh, it balances out um, that way. But it came uh, later to mean just in accord, in accord with or in accordance with or fitting of. That, that is that they're just, that they just match each other. They belong together. They correspond with each other. And so this phrase is used um, in similar ways by Paul elsewhere Ephesians chapter 4 and the first three verses, really the first six verses, is, is a great example. He says, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. But he uses this, this same phrase. Uh, that is all to say, a life worthy of the gospel is just one that fits or corresponds with the gospel. It doesn't earn it in, in uh, advance or deserve it after the fact. Um, but it does mean that there's some conduct that just doesn't fit. Now, this is where, if you're, if you're tuned out, <laughs> this is where you need to tune in, okay? Because there is con conduct of Christians that doesn't fit the gospel. That's, that's the implication of what Paul is saying here. Live your life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, that corresponds with it, that fits with that, matches with it. You know, we hear people use phrases like, uh, you know, refer to certain conduct as being un-American, for example. There are certain things um, that are, it, it's like it doesn't even need to be explained, um, even though people would object <laughs> to different, different things that would be called un-American, but people use that phrase. And the implication is, that being American brings with it certain values um, that are inviolable, that, you, you know, that they, that they must be um, embraced and affirmed, or else at some point you're not really American. U.S. military officers can be charged with conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman because there is conduct that's just expected of an officer of the military. And if you don't conduct yourself, you fail to conduct yourself that way or con conduct yourself somehow um, egregiously contrary to that, it's actually a criminal offense, potentially. But, but again, the implication of that is there are, there are some values so essential to who we are 
that they, they cannot simply be rejected or ignored or violated. So we have, we've received good news of a heavenly kingdom. Um, we become citizens of that kingdom through the gospel. And we live our lives by the values of that kingdom of which we are citizens. That's what's being urged upon us. To live your life as citizens of the kingdom in a way that is fitting of the good news of entry into that kingdom. Well, let's consider a second question, which is what is the evidence of a gospel-worthy life? Well, I would say in general, the evidence is that our life reflects obedience to the kingdom's laws and values. He actually mentions two specific examples here, and those are the ones I want to deal with because that's what's in the text. And, and one of those is unity, uh, unity among believers. He says in the second part of verse 27, so that whether I live your life in that manner, so that whether I see you, come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit of one mind and uh, side by side, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You're standing firm in one spirit. You are all of one mind and you're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, if we all truly have our allegiance to Christ and his kingdom, uh, then we can stand in one spirit and out of one mind because we'll agree on which issues are primary and which are secondary. Um, you might not have, have followed that statement right now, but it is to say our division as believers comes from our preoccupation with earth matters. And if we... If we have our allegiance properly aligned and our priorities properly set upon his kingdom, um, we're not going to have a hard time agreeing upon what's essential, what's primary. Um, our struggle, of course, is that uh, we do get very preoccupied with earthly things. But as I alluded to earlier, Ephesians 4 has a very similar message uh, this walk worthy of the calling, that, that, that the evidence um, of the fact that we belong to Christ, the evidence that our life really is conformed to the good news that we proclaim is that the, the body is one body. He uses that over and over, and that ought to strike us at our core because right now, uh, there is more division among Christians than I've seen in a lot of years. I said this earlier, you know, the dividing lines in our culture um, prior to this year were there, there were, there were pretty deep divides, but by and large, Christians were on the same side of the divide in most cases. Uh, now the division runs right through the church. And it is the responsibility of Christians. Christians are responsible for the division in the church and they're responsible for healing the division in the church. But, I, but, but let me say this sort of pointedly, connecting the dots between the, the first half of verse 27 and the second half of verse 27, that divisive Christians are unworthy of the gospel. That's the implication of Paul's message. Divisive Christians, those who are sowing 
discord in the body. Uh, stirring up strife in the body, driving wedges between them, sometimes over ridiculous issues. The fact, I've said it before, the fact that, that uh, masks have become the divisive issue in the church of Jesus Christ is absolutely absurd. The fact that there are disagreement about masks, fine and normal, right? Uh, the fact that people don't like them, choose not to go places where they're required to wear them, all of that, well and good enough, we can disagree about. The fact that that becomes an issue of division and people aren't content enough to have a different opinion, but, but will go um, seeking to get other people on their side of the issue and just to sort of make a statement somehow. It is absolutely absurd, and may I even say stupid. It is stupid that the church of Jesus Christ would be divided over something like that. But that, that's, that's really probably at the fore. But there are lots of other issues, too, that right now um, have divided the church and very often at the hands of or the mouth of divisive people. And, and, and the message may be, you may be one of the people that, that needs to be convicted of that fact and repent of it. But many of us maybe need um, to be encouraged, don't get sucked into that vortex. Just don't. Be gracious um, and keep your distance <laughs> if necessary. But that disunity among believers is unworthy of the gospel. That the first evidence he gives here and in the book of Ephesians um, of, a, of a, a walk that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling of Christ as unity. The second is, he mentions here, is fearlessness in the face of opposition. He says in verse 28, um, not only are you to be standing firm in one spirit and so on, but not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction um, but of your salvation and that from God. Philippi was still not a particularly friendly place for Christians. You remember Paul was arrested there and put into jail when the gospel first came to Philippi. The situation seems not to have changed real measurably. It's still a difficult place to be a Christian. And uh, that's probably part of the reason that they're being challenged in the area of unity because what happens is when people are under a lot of pressure and stress, they tend to turn on each other. There's this sort of survival instinct that's is sort of like the cat that's cornered or something and the claws come out and they just start scratching at whoever comes near and sometimes it's friends, not foes. But they tend to turn on each other, they get impatient, they blame other people for things and, and just living in a more um, agitated and angered state. Well, that certainly describes us in a lot of ways right now that that's probably the pressure and the stress and the aggravation is probably a source of the division as well but they're told here not only uh, to be unified but also to be fearless when when threatened the natural reaction tends to be either to cower in fear or to retaliate right those tend to be the two reactions when threatened by some fearful opponent, we either respond in fear and retreat or cower or retaliate and repay evil for evil. But to stand fearless 
while also remaining peaceable and nonviolent is a powerful testimony of God's favor. And that's what he says here, that, that remaining fearless, even though they're not going to become violent, they're not engaging, uh, you know, re returning like for like or dislike for dislike, if you want to. They're not returning evil for evil. Uh, but fearless nonetheless, and it's a clear sign of their destruction and of your salvation, he says. Unity and fearlessness, but as I said, we could really say there are lots of other kingdom values that ought to be embodied by the church. Truth-telling would be another one that would be good for us to be reminded of right now. But the third question is, what is our motivation for living a gospel-worthy life? I said what, uh, we, we looked at what is a gospel-worthy life, um, and uh, what's the evidence of a gospel-worthy life? And then what's our motivation? I'm just going to touch this one shortly here. But verse 29 says, twice, it refers to the sake of Christ, that for the sake of Christ, it's been granted to you to believe, and it's been granted to you to suffer. Look at, look at what it says there. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This comes out a little differently depending on what translation you're looking at. Um, and it, it might say, on behalf of Christ and then for him or whatever. It uses different language in those two places. In Greek, it it's, uh, repeats the same uh, language there with the same preposition. But the, the point there is it puts Christ at the center of the issue. It is for his sake that we have believed and that we suffer. The word granted uh, could be translated as graciously giving. It has this word um, gift or grace uh, at its root. But God saved you. God, it, it, salvation is a work of the Lord. And Eve says that at the end of verse 28, where we said that this is a, their, their fearlessness is a testimony to their opponents of their salvation. And that from God, it's a reminder, he's the one who saved you. Um, that he has always intended to, to receive glory by the very fact that he saves anybody in a world populated by people who all deserve judgment, the fact that he saves um, is a source of glory for him, but also how he saves. And he does so entirely by his grace. And it is a gift that we even have the faith to believe. Uh, it is a gift that we have the privilege suffering in the name of Jesus. We don't think of it that way at all in our culture, and we don't have to experience it much that way. But as he suffered on your behalf, now you have the privilege of suffering on his behalf. That's what the text says um, for his sake. And we need to be reminded that, that uh, God has a master plan for the whole world and, and for all of the history of the world. And that plan is fulfilled in Christ and that we're a part of that plan. That, that 
My life is not my own. Your life, if you're a Christian, is not your own. You don't cling to the former life. You don't, as I said at the outset, just carry on as you were until you get to the end of the life and present a ticket and then you get to go to heaven. Your life now belongs to him. You don't live in the kingdom of darkness. You now live in the kingdom of light and you are subjects of Christ the king, who's a good king, that you are his representative in this world that every morning when you get up, before you, even, before you even get out of bed, you might think about the fact that you are getting up and clothing yourself as an ambassador of Christ in this earth. That your first duty is to represent him on this earth. That all you do is for his sake, for his glory, because even your belief in him and your suffering for him is all for his sake. So what do we do with that then? So, what's, so what about all of this? How do, we, how do we respond? There are maybe any variety of ways that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you or stirred something in you, even as we've gone along here. I just want to mention a few things that maybe would be appropriate responses here to the word. There are probably some Christians who need to decide once again to really surrender their lives to Christ. I'm not talking about um, being saved or resaved, or uh, although there may be some people who have never really been born again and 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 followed Jesus. But there there may be some people who really need to surrender their lives to Christ because um, the call the call that He issues is not just believe in Him, but it is to follow Him. The Great Commission. Um, is not only to baptize people into the family of God, but to teach them to obey everything that he taught. The call is to follow him. And many Christians have believed in him and yet have followed their own wishes. They have followed the course of this world. They are puppets of somebody else in in some cases, just um, uh, living by the dictates and motivations of other people of this world. But you don't belong to this world. You belong to him and you're an ambassador in this world representing his interests. So some people may just need to uh, once again surrender their lives to Christ. Some people need to confess the sin of divisiveness and repent of that. You, you gripe and you grumble and you develop such a habit of being negative that it seems normal to you. And it's not normal to other people. And maybe even some people are trying to keep a distance. But you um, have developed the habit of becoming divisive, even, even if you haven't thought of it that way. And that may be something the Lord is stirring in you to repent of. Some may need to ask for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be, to be fearless without being contentious. There are probably people on both sides that are living in a more fearful posture Um, some that aren't fearful, but they're contentious. And you may need to ask the Holy Spirit for that supernatural ability to be fearless without being contentious. And then finally, there's some who maybe your response to this needs to be detoxing from the internet. Like you really, especially email and social media, um, but but the, the things where you have a voice that you know is an unhealthy voice, Things where you've got your ear or attention to voices that are unhealthy for you. Whatever, whatever combination of that it may be in your particular case, there are people who really do need to detox and, and, 
and be online as little as possible for a period of time because you are sucked into um, living as if you're a citizen of this world and, and embracing all of the values of this world when you are supposed to be uh, representing all the values of the kingdom of heaven. And what you may have to do in order to get back to that place is to detox from the internet. There may be other points of application and other ways where you would walk that out. Um, we want to spend some time in prayer now just responding to the word and asking the Lord to show us exactly that. So however it is you need to respond, would you do so um, at the end of this prayer that I offer as the worship team leads us in song. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, thank you for uh, your never-ending grace to us, that you love us unceasingly, unfailingly, Lord, that you are faithful even when we're faithless. Lord, I pray that you would continue to minister the truth and power of your word to your people right now. Would you lead us to those places of conviction, confession, repentance, surrender, um, change in whatever ways we need it. Because we want to be a people. We want to be a people um, who live a life that fits the gospel that we proclaim. We want to be a church that represents the presence of Jesus on this earth. Lord, where we are failing to do so now, would you uh, change us and conform us more to his likeness? We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.